Chapter Eight. To keep one's temper under test conditions is not always possible. To love one's neighbor as oneself, when the neighbor may have been very unpleasant, is not free from difficulties. The physical body tends to react to unpleasant things in a self-protecting manner, and from self-protecting to aggression against another is often. But a small step. But amidst all our physical body's reactive tendencies, it is not these as such that we shall be judged for, and so it is not these as such that are important to us. What is important for us is the state of our will, the condition of our soul as the initiator of our motives. Where do our personal actions originate? They originate in the innermost centre of our being, within the deepest depths of the soul itself, in the hidden recesses of which is our pure will, the will which cannot be conditioned by externals without its own giving itself to them. The will is the soul in its own power of self-initiation, self-immobilisation, and self. Mobilization, the will can still itself or move itself without any external stimulus, or in relation to any external thing or situation or event. The power of the soul to will stillness or movement in relation to itself, or in relation to any external situation, signifies that the soul is entirely self-responsible for its actions. Or its non-actions. It is this total self-responsibility that is both the ground of humanity's potential greatness and of its potential degradation. Because this is so, we shall be well advised to make ourselves more and more aware of the fact of this innermost power of the soul. How do we do this? How are we to become aware of the fact that we really do choose what attitude we shall take to an event or thing or a person? There are some psychologists who believe, or say that they believe, that we do not choose how we shall react to a situation or to any kind of stimulus that we receive. They say that they believe that every action of a human being, as of an animal, is conditioned by the nature of the physical body, its chemistry, electrical properties, and so on, and by the nature of the physical stimuli that act upon the body from outside. If their belief were true. Then they would be unable to stop doing their laboratory experiments, unable to choose to write or not write a book about their work and findings. They would be entirely determined in their actions by the physical, chemical, and electrical processes going on inside our bodies, and by the external stimuli which act upon these. But if we look sincerely. Inside ourselves, into the quietest depths of our mental life, if we examine carefully our inner processes, we find that we have some degree of control about what we think and how we think it. 
and if we have some degree of control, no matter how small this degree is, then we are not absolutely conditioned by our physical, chemical, and electrical body processes. But if we are not absolutely at the mercy of such processes, then we have in us the seed of possible growth of greater freedom. We can work to increase our freedom, study our own physical, mental, and psychical processes. We can find out how our whole being is related to its parts, and how these parts interact with each other within the whole. We can teach ourselves to watch our own processes, physical, mental, psychical, and spiritual. We can start by watching how we actually do certain physical actions, and then watch our reasons for them, and how we feel about them, and about our own self in the doing and thinking of them. And then we can seek the spirit within ourselves, the center of our freedom and initiative. There is a procedure which we can follow for our own self-examination. An order of approach to the discovery of our potentialities, a number of steps we can take on our soul's journey towards perfection and freedom. Let us examine these. We will set out the number of steps we are to take. Then we shall examine them in detail. The first step is to watch our physical body's actions, so that we become clearly aware. Of what we actually do from moment to moment. The second step is to watch our feelings of liking and disliking, and the emotional tendencies that arise from these. The third step is to watch our mentational processes, the stream of ideas that flows through our mind and carries our attention now this way, now that. The fourth step is to look for the principles which we use as guides for our mental, emotional, and physical activities. The fifth step is to become aware of the point of initiative within our life, the moments in which we actually choose between alternatives. This is a very important step. The sixth step is to see how often we make ourselves. Conscious of overlooking all the preceding steps, the seventh step is to know whether we have faith in God's all-comprehending presence, within which we have our being and our life, and in His divine purpose for us. Once we have become aware that these steps of self-development have to be taken. We can then go on to take them in order, one by one. Step one is to become aware of our physical body's actions, the actual things we do with our body and its parts from moment to moment. We look at each action we perform, each gesture we make, and note its form or character. Here we will find. What we mean when we say that consciousness is a catalyst, it means that when we become conscious of an action, 
and note its useful or useless nature, its intelligent purpose or unintelligent purposelessness, the mere fact of becoming conscious of the action's nature tends to change it. It is very difficult if we find ourselves doing something foolish not to modify our action in some way. As long as we are quite unconscious of our actions, they can continue to operate in their own established way. But if we are made sharply conscious of an action, which is one we would not like to be seen doing, either by other persons or by ourselves in a mirror, then we find that this action tends to modify. It is clear that we have inside us some kind of image of ourselves, a picture of our being as we would like it to be, so that it may be acceptable to ourselves. What is the origin of this acceptable picture of ourselves? It derives from our original perfection, that faultless state of being in which God created our first human ancestor. The source of our belief in possible perfection is the perfection of God himself. When God creates a thing, that thing is always perfect, for he is himself perfection. He is perfect in action, feeling, thought and will and so produces always things that conform exactly to his intention. Was the first human being perfectly created? And if so, how did he fall into sin? To understand this, we must first grasp the meaning of freedom. God did not will the first human being to be a senseless machine, incapable of any actions but those programmed into it. God did not design man as man designs a computer to be absolutely incapable of disobedience. There are many people today who have accepted an idea of a computer put forward by certain kinds of science fiction writers who like to frighten people into believing that computers may be intelligent and may overthrow their designers and take over the world, reducing man to perpetual slavery. But a properly designed computer is not intelligent, although it may have intelligently designed action patterns programmed into it. If a computer is in proper working order, it cannot disobey the instructions fed into it. The computer has no free will. But God breathed into man the spirit, which conferred upon man the power of free choice, and with this power the capacity of choosing wrongly as well as rightly. Many people are puzzled by the idea that God would give man a capacity for doing wrong. But if we think carefully, we will see that if man had not been given a free will, he would be a machine, an organism, entirely at the mercy of every stimulus that struck upon him. 
but if he is given a free will, then he must necessarily be able to disobey any instructions given to him. Either man is totally unfree, or if he is free to choose, then he must logically be able to choose not only rightly but wrongly. This is the price that God has to pay for preferring to create free beings rather than mechanical marionettes. It is this same freedom which God breathed into us with His Spirit. That is the ground of the possibility of man's fall into sin and error. It is also the ultimate guarantee of the possibility of his reclamation and re-establishment in his lost perfection. From becoming aware of physical body actions and the dissatisfaction we experience in ourselves, we become aware that we have inside us a sense of perfection. Which arises from the depths of our being. What we once had, we can again recapture if we reverse the choice which led to our loss. By choosing to disobey God's command, our first human ancestor fell into bondage to the things of the outer world. He lost consciousness of his innermost freedom of will. And fell under the domination of the stimuli that brings pleasure and pain to the body. He would now have to undergo a process of gaining more and more experience of the things of the outer world to feel the pleasure and pains that such material things could impose on him, until finally he would begin to see that he must gain some kind of transcendence. To pleasure and pains, in order to free himself from their dictatorship over his freedom. This carries us to the consideration of our second step: the watching of our feelings of liking and disliking, and the experience of the emotionally driven tendencies to act upon such feelings. In this process, we are to watch nothing. But our likings and dislikings, as they arise and vanish, and to note the conditions under which they arise, we find when we do this exercise that our feelings change from moment to moment in correspondence with thoughts which are presented in the mind, some at conscious and some at unconscious levels. The ideas of which we are conscious usually have some degree of liking or disliking attached to them, which we can consciously feel, and for which we may believe we have a reason. But some of our likings and dislikings arise without presenting with them correspondent ideas. Such feelings lead us to believe that we may have some ideas of which. We are not conscious that we may have in us an unconscious mind, thinking thoughts of which we have no conscious knowledge, thoughts perhaps too secret to allow into our consciousness, in case we should accidentally mention them to someone who might be annoyed by them, or thoughts that prefer to experiences or events. 
too painful to bear thinking about. By careful, sharp watching of our likes and dislikes, we become aware that we are continuously being moved by emotional energies which arise from feelings of liking or disliking. Accompanying some of these emotional energies are more or less clear ideas. But others may surge through us with no conscious idea correspondences. These second kinds of energies are often the cause of impulsive activities that we later regret. But as before, consciousness is a catalyst. If we continue to look sharply at our feelings and emotions, our likes and dislikes, they begin to change. Because they do not always match up to our inner sense of perfection.